Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. Every day, 10,000 people turn 75 in this country, and there are more people in their 80s and 90s than at any other point in history. That's why there's an insatiable demand for senior housing, especially quality senior housing. Today's guest, Paul Griffin, is CEO of Griffin Living, a national developer of quality senior living that builds great communities that are also safe for residents given today's health concerns around COVID-19. Today we have with us a very, very seasoned, to say the least, real estate and developer. I was going to say investor, but probably that suffices as well uh, down there in Southern California. His name is Paul Griffin III, and he is CEO and president of Griffin Living. Paul, thank you so much for joining me on Street Smart Success. Thank you for having me, Roger. I'm really pleased to be here. And um, I did catch the innuendo of very senior, that very seasoned, which means I'm very senior, <laughs> but I stand guilty. <laughs> well, I guess some people are so smart they could get seasoned without being senior, but boy, that's not been my case in my personal endeavors. And so, you know, you've got a, a really, really impressive resume, uh, which is to say the least. I know you went to UCLA. And by the way, one of the things I loved is you didn't have an MBA. At least it wasn't on your LinkedIn profile. And you didn't have the doctoral and post. Sounds like you just got a four-year degree and and then uh, got on with it. Are you a Southern Cal native? I I am. Our family uh, has been uh, here in California in the real estate development business for five generations now since 1903. The sixth generation is finishing school and starting their first jobs and actively trying to push me out of the saddle <laughs> to take over. So uh, it is, it's multi-generational. And I think the reason for that is California, you know, just experienced such amazing growth through the 20th century. And all the Griffins did was, you know, show up and participate uh, through the generations. And um, you know, we've, we've learned and grown and enjoyed it. For, uh, for myself, or for college, I, I did go to UCLA. I was, uh, grew up here in, in the uh, suburban Los Angeles uh, area. And uh, as it, when I grew up, it was, it was interesting. We, there were orange groves all around us and horse farms. And you know, the guys in our, our neighborhood were pretty spread out. But the guys in our neighborhood would you know, run around and you know, pretty, um, pretty rural kind of living for an area that was you know, later enveloped in, in the city of Los Angeles and its growth. So I really idyllic uh, childhood here. And um, off to UCLA, and that was a great experience. I, um, I liked being at university like that because there were so many smart people around. And, you know, I could kind of reassure myself during that process that, you know, I could hang with, hang with all of them. The reason I didn't go on for um, for postgraduate work in an MBA um, is I was started. Uh, my dad always made me uh, work out on projects when I was in high school, and he thought if you were tired and sweaty and you know exhausted, you understood what it was like to to work for a living. You know, it would be a better foundation. And, and I learned from that. And by the time I was about halfway through uh, college, I think I was just finishing my sophomore year at UCLA, I um, figured out. How to uh, go up into the northern part of the San Fernando Valley into what were olive groves. And um, I grabbed, I think there were around 65 acres. It uh, was owned by a family down in Newport Beach. I asked them if I could have a long escrow with, you know, minimum 
deposit because I really didn't have any money and um, that I would either, you know, have the, have the project, uh, you know, a, a approved, subdivided it into uh, 60, gosh, I can't remember, but 63 lots or turn their olive grove back to them if I wasn't getting in their way. But anyway, I was successful with down, downtown Los Angeles, kept driving back and forth from my uh, fraternity house over at UCLA and Got the got the land split and the lots approved the uh, the uh, engineering plan done for the streets and what have you and then um, I begged some uh, floor plans from my dad's company for some for some houses architecture and I took all of that together to Bank of America and got a loan back then we could get a eighty percent loan to cost which effectively was all of the cost. Uh, 80% loan to value. I'm sorry, 80% loan to value. Can't do that anymore, but then we could. Like you could get 85% loans, but I it only applied for an 80% loan, which was approved. And I, the 80%, I used the portion for a land draw to pay the family in Newport Beach for their land and then um, hired contractors to do the infrastructure and then uh, I, I subcontractors to build the houses and sold them. And I just... By the time I'd finished college, I had made a mint of money for somebody my age. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I thought, gosh, this is, this is great. You can make money doing this, and it's actually a lot of fun. <laughs> and that's, that, I suppose, would, would, would count as my business school education. So I, I left UCLA just straight into, uh, straight into real estate development, and I've, I've enjoyed every minute of it since. Do you remember how much money you made on that project? I think it was a, it was it was over a hundred thousand dollars for me uh, and I think it was somewhere under 150 might have been 200 but it, it was it, it wasn't a huge number by today's standards or what I would think about today as a college boy it seemed like a tidal wave but you know oh, absolutely. we were all we, we guys were all working in beer bars and everything. You know, they, we were just guys. I picked up the fraternity house, painting the sale signs. You know, the big new housing. You know, coming soon and price from this and that. We we would be in the uh, in the dining room of the frat house with some guys that were artistic, helping me put big signs together <laughs> and drive them out. It was just a fun project. And um, goodness, great time of life. Well, hey, I had minimum wage jobs in college and, uh, you know, for our listeners, I, I guess I will go ahead and date you and me here, but minimum wage then, and I was in the state of Ohio was like 265 an hour. So when you made a, a hundred grand, trust me, uh, that, that's, that's a king's ransom. Just for clarification. So is the sixth generation your progeny, your children? My son is autistic, so it's not him, but my daughter is um, very bright. She's a Harvard and uh, she's a Rhodes Scholar, went to Oxford and did an MBA at Stanford. And um, she does do work for us when she deigns to do it. She has other jobs and is a busy young woman, um, but she's very bright and, and uh, could easily you know, move me out. Uh, another nephew of mine is MIT and Caltech. He could move me out at any time. He works for uh, JPL right now. Um, I have another nephew working at, uh, he's just finished an undergrad. He's a little boy like me, and he's been working for Disney and their real estate uh, group. And um, another nephew that's out in, uh, in our Atlanta office and working hard. He's really good at market research and he's a bright young guy. I'm going to move him forward into our Ford planning group. I think the managers and the, the people that work in that group for us are extremely bright and a great opportunity for education. So yeah, they, they come my nieces, nephews, and you know, in, in my mind, 
you know, great, great grandfathers and great grandfather, grandfather, my dad, they, they all opened the doorway for me to come in and to, to manage the business as it's a venture business. You know, it's not, it's not like they handed over a company or, you know, really assets. What they handed over is the education and the, um, the ability to make money in real estate development and, um, you know, just taken advantage of it and started projects and developed them. And that's that same opportunity is what I want to be sure I pass along to anybody else in the family or any even my key managers, any of their children. I've always offered them the same opportunities too if they want to come and work. So, you know, I, I think that it's not, I don't see this as a zero-sum game where there's a, you know, a, um, a factory that has to be split up or a business. Real estate development is a venture business. We teach people how to do it and give them good advice on ventures they might bring in and then get out of their way and, you know, let them have the joy and the success that I had. <laughs> and the heart, and, you know, Roger, through the years, the heartaches and the, the, the failures, I, I, you know, they're all part of the, part of the package. They're part of the joy of, the tapestry of life, if you will. I completely understand that. And I was going to ask you about that. But before I do, quick detail, where in suburban LA did you grow up? Um, I was out in Chatsworth. I know Chatsworth. My wife actually moved with her family late high school years to Northridge. So same neck of the ah, Yeah, we had a, you know, it was a, it had a big family and dad, you know, was, well, back then people moved out to, to the country and it was uh, um, a lot of engineers and, and um, businesses and, and what have you. It was just a, a great lifestyle. And um, so it was a great place to grow up. And great families that were all around us. The development that you did in college, you said northern San Fernando Valley, where? that was It was up in Silmar. And Silmar is the other side of the San Fernando Valley, also in the north. And it was uh, olive groves. It, it, in fact, I think... About the time I had gotten there, all of olives had you know moved other places, but it was at the time um, just finishing it being the largest olive producing part of the of the United States. Um, I think back then you can finish olives in different directions, but I think that they were uh, uh, produced what uh, would be black olives that we all used to eat back then to process them that way. And so. Your first uh, endeavor, it sounds like, that you did on your own. You were in college. You subdivided some land, built some houses. What did you, is that what you did out of college? Like, what was the progression? Um, you know what I did after, after college? My dad's uh, company was a fairly good size, fairly good size company, about $250 million in sales um, back then. So it's about 1980 or so when I'm finishing. Um, he had McKinsey company in doing, um, some consulting for him and they're just really smart guys at McKinsey that were working for him. So I would, um, came to work for my dad's company and, um, reported to do, uh, assignments for the McKinsey, uh, consultants that were in, um, learned just a lot of business acting, probably also where I picked up you know, without a formal education, picked up my accounting and finance, which are both very different operational, um, diff different ways to approach operations, um, different ways to approach the organizational structure. And of course, all of that, you know, has evolved through the years, but um, I w we've always worked with um, Pricewaterhouse and Deloitte and Touche. And uh, um, for our finance, um, McKinsey had worked with us back in the early 80s. We've been pretty facile at reaching out to um, different different sources of limited partner equity and um, 
you know, debt from uh, commercial banks. We don't really uh, work much with uh, general partner kinds of uh, kinds of investors. Uh, I find that that is really not functional. Where I saw my dad do it with a few situations back in those days, I would always talk to him and say, "Dad, I just I don't understand why you want a general partner. We, you trip over them all the time. I see more time wasted around here." With people that, that you know want to interact, but they really have no idea uh, you know what you're doing and they type your decisions. I like the limited partner equity tranche better. Now, back in the early '80s, we didn't even need too much limited partner equity because you could get so much commercial debt. But um, as time went on, and and uh, the federal government squeezed our uh, commercial banks to protect that system, um, we've just replaced the capital structure with more um, with more equity. And um, therefore, have gotten you know we just look at the total cost of uh, of capital as as the mix of of you know what we're paying for debt and what we're paying for equity. Um, but but we approach them you know both as just a cost of capital, and um, and then our general partner equity is you know managed ourselves on at the uh, at the bottom of all of it. So basically, you're the GP, and then you'll bring in limited partners into projects that you do. We will, and um, we've worked. We generally have worked with um, institutional kinds of general partners, but what I'm very interested in, just as the markets are evolving and um, being knocked around, I'm seeing that the returns for uh, family offices are not really, you know, as great as they should be as the opportunities. So how do we reach out to family offices and at least let them see what it is we're doing, what the security is or what the risk is also? And what kind of return they can make in the projects that we're offering. So, I, I actually started thinking about family offices when we uh, developed a property in Atlanta about four years ago. It was a assisted living memory care building in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, we had intended to uh, um, stabilize it and then move it into our Griffin family offices. Um, out of Griffin Living and into our Griffin family offices as part of our portfolio. But another uh, family office, Harrison Street out of Chicago, um, approached us and said, this is, you know, we want to get into the business of senior housing investment. This is an excellent project, which it truly was. I mean, that's why Griffins wanted to keep it. And um, they made made us an offer that was high enough that we said, you know, we've got another apartment project in California that we were thinking about selling, but I think we'll hang on to it and sell the the Georgian project to, uh, to Harrison Street. So that, that was a great transaction. Working Harrison Street's huge and very professional. And um, getting to know them, I just realized that that's a, you know, there's, there is a whole class of investors that we really hadn't had a lot of contact with. And we're, we're really interested in developing and see if we can't find relationships with family offices, bring them better returns than they're making maybe in, uh, in other kinds of investments and be able to explain uh, the risk portfolio of any given uh, propositional project that we might bring them, so that you know, make informed decision and a you know comfortable investment if if they wish. Using the term family offices, and I'm not a sophisticated investor or a real estate guy or the combination thereof. I'm a the poster child for Ma and Pa, so I've never heard the term family offices. What exactly does that mean? I could infer obviously the term family, but what does that mean? Family offices. 
<laughs> yes, as you said, I could infer the term family, and I'm thinking, I wonder if I'm invited to Thanksgiving dinner with my parents this year. <laughs> well, it's a different story. <laughs> Let's, um, anyway, uh, I'm actually not, in, in terms of family offices, I'm you know, really a newbie also. I'm thinking there are, you know, Harrison Street, you could call it a family office, but it's, you know, they're huge. <laughs> they're bigger than a lot of, uh, of institutional kinds of investors. But there's also family offices that are, you know, like the Griffins. We, you know, we have a pretty, we have a, a, a reasonable investment portfolio in our family offices. We do buy and sell and go in and out of, of commercial properties and investment. And there, there also is somebody there that manages, you know, stock portfolio and in and out. And so it's a family office that for in, in our case that takes our, our, family assets and invest them in different kinds of, uh, you know, portfolio, different kinds of returns. And we're heavy, heavier in real estate because it's just what the individual members of my family understand better. But it's not, the, the family office isn't me and it's not, it is really nothing to do with our real estate development company. It's simply to say there's a, there are good projects that we might finish and sell or the family office might might say, "Gosh, the income stream from that particular project, you know, is something that gives us a, a you know a great return." And I I think if, as the Griffin family office looks at real estate investments, you, the depreciation on on the income stream is is you know really nice. So the the investment makes sense. There are other family offices that might be smaller. They may be somebody that's that is a um, you know a ten million dollar size family office. Um, to a smaller size, and they might say, "Gosh, I might put you know a million or two million dollars up into a project that would be a to ten twenty percent of their portfolio." So they have to be very very careful about what they did with that one. But they might like their that one to give a twenty five percent return, and um, and then have other more secured investments that you know get uh, six or seven or eight percent return, and you know manage a portfolio somewhere in between. So yeah, I think we use the term family office really as a catch-all in my mind, or I'm happy of listeners that could speak to this better than I could even, but I use a catch-all term for, you know, people with an invest, for individuals that are not institutional that have an investment portfolio. And some of those guys are so big, they, they might as well be institutional. And other guys are smaller. They've really managed their assets and they've done very, very well. And they they're, want to be particular and careful, but they also want returns. So in other words, it's not literally means family, although it can be. It basically is just not institutional money, but it's people of a certain or a degree of substantiality. It's probably not even a word. I just probably made that up. But So it's not exactly literal family, but not... Yeah, sub- substantive, substantive kind of investment. I, I, I think so, Roger. It, you know, um, gosh, I'm thinking about, they think about, you know, a generation of people that have worked hard and they, you know, they've amassed a net worth and they've saved and invested. And so it creates a, you know, creates a portfolio of, you know, 10, you know, take 10 or, uh, you know, up to a hundred million dollars. Those guys, you know, I know many of them from my dad's generation and they're, maybe they're, they're uh, children that are my age and, you know, our, our age, Roger, and they're, are inheriting family offices are trying to manage that portfolio for maybe their brothers and sisters and themselves uh, from, you know, from, from what was handed down to them. And they're not always in the same business that the original earner was in. They, they may be doing other things, but there is 
for baby boomers as you get to you know the second half of the baby boom generation they're gaining substantial assets from you know the end of the greatest generation and into the uh, korean you know guys that were in korea which you call that group and the first half of the baby boomers those guys you know they the uh, america boomed through those years and those guys you know amassed quite a bit of wealth and it's it's being passed along now to um, to our generation and the next generation after. So you said twenty five percent, and I, you know, just you kind of threw that out. What kind of returns, I guess, for you, Paul, to basically determine to do a project? What is a number that I guess is a number that you would be willing to do a project for uh, in terms of anticipated returns? Well, so is. It's a great question. Um, so if, if you don't mind, well, I'm going to take a little bit of a round the barn to answer it. We've always been in real estate development. We looked at, you know, family needs, uh, you know, through the 1980s, 90s, and 2000s as I was developing. We did, I really focused on, in my generation, on large mass, large communities. So, so it's called small master plan communities, but they would be 1,000 to 2,000 units, park schools, shopping, little little bit of commercial office, and then several neighborhoods, and we developed them out. That was because we saw the need for families as they were growing, in, uh, particularly in California, and we were able to be successful at it. We also, in the multifamily, you know, we had always kept some of the shopping centers, moved them into the you know, Griffin family offices, and some of the um, Apartment buildings, we would keep actually several of them. We would develop multifamily as part of our master plans and flip those over to family offices, away from me and into family offices. Today, I got into uh, senior housing because just the demographics in the country are, are shifting. T- today, as we're, as we're here, there are 10,000 Americans every day turning 75 years old, which is an amazing statistic. And 75 years old is the threshold for the first needs for housing of some kind, that also means there's a, a large number of people that are into their 80s uh, in the generation before. And there, there really hasn't been, you know, much developed in the way of senior housing, which, you know, would go in striations of independent living, which would be the kind of housing that, that say, if God forbid something, my wife passed, I wouldn't stay here in our house with our dog and our gardeners and housekeeper. I wouldn't do it. I would move into an independent uh, um, living facility, probably a CCRC, which is a uh, million dollars to move in. They give 800000 of it back to your family when you die. Um, but it's, you know, they're, they're exquisite in terms of their, um, of their features. They could have an apartment. You could have dinner, cocktails before dinner with interesting people who've done quite a lot of things in their life and, you know, dinner with them if you wish or, you know, fix your own dinner, have your housekeeper come in and fix whatever you want. But to me, that would be an easier life in my seventies. Um, as we get older, more likely we get older, you know, I'll pass away and my wife will be living and my daughter will be moving my wife into, uh, into some kind of assisted living, which is needs-based housing. So which she really couldn't take care of herself anymore. Um, she doesn't go for independent living, but she goes into assisted living. That whole area is in, in my mind underdeveloped in this country. 
there are some great examples of companies that are, are doing better with it. One uh, competitor who I have no inside information to, but I really respect the projects is uh, Merrill Gardens. I think they're out of Washington or Oregon, but they, they, where I've run into their projects, they're beautiful. They have great independent living centers that people could move in. They license and, and it you know, just looks active and up, upbeat happy to be there. The residents seem happy to me when you walk in and talk to them, um, but you could stay You could stay there and then sort of age in place into their assisted living and be taken care of. Or, you know, if you need memory care, they could, they could also move you towards their memory care wings. In my mind, that is a great example of where the uh, senior housing model, um, another example on the other side of it is a, a, an excellent company. They're, you know, one of the most respected and uh, they really focus it seems to, it seems to me again with no inside knowledge of them just from the outside they, uh, is um, sunrise and sunrise seems to focus on needs-based housing to me and uh, they're they're really excellent centers they good excellent quality of care and food and all the rest of it. Uh, it they seem to me to have smaller units when I when I've seen them um, they're more place that you would move to when you really are uh, needing assisted living, you know, true assisted living in memory care. Um, so there would be an example of doing a great job on the other side. And there's you know, a lot of people in between. Um, I, as I started into the business myself with our first project in 2010, I think it was 2011, um, I you know, I would take my management team, we would visit all sorts of senior care facilities. And, you know, what struck us is, gosh, would we want to have to move into one of these? And there were pretty few and far between where we'd say, yeah, I'd be happy to be here. Mostly it was, God, whatever happens, shoot me. Don't send me here. <laughs> so, you know, the other people that I'm mentioning are, uh, you know, in Maryland Sunrise, both, they're great. I would move into either one if I needed them. And there's several others that are of that elk. So we're coming at this, uh, you know, Griffin model is we're coming at this to, to meet the need, but the need for seniors is not just the shelter the physical building, that's the easiest part. The idea is, is really to be in a location where we're nearby, where the, you know, the next generation of the family that's going to see to the senior citizens, usually it's a, you know, a, the, the daughter who is usually in her 50s most often, um, and she's got you know, teenage kids and early 20s and college and what have you of her own. She's got a husband, um, possibly who works. She probably works. She's, she needs to see to her parents um, and would like them nearby where, where she lives. She could get over and see them every day, but she can't really have, you know, her, her mother or father living at her house because it would require, you know, a caregiver there 24 hours, which is extremely expensive. So you go to needs-based in a senior uh, assisted living or, or, you know, senior center nearby where she can see them all the time and psychologically where you walk in the front door and it's inviting, there's energy, which is just what I see when I go into the uh, Merrill Garden building and uh, sunrises feels just more homey, um, a little darker, more of a, you know, they, they like, it, again, no inside information, but seeing, uh, sunrise seems to like to develop their, um, their um, mansion style, so you come in and it's it feels like a home, although it's giant. And uh, you know, our, our thought is to walk in and have a lot of light. You know, to uh, say thirty foot uh, tall uh, glass uh, look glass wall looking from the from the main room, the main activity room, out to uh, a courtyard, which we want to have fountains. We want to have 
you know, bird aviaries, uh, um, lemon trees, you know, bougainvillea bush. Want to have it to be really pretty sights and senses, but you're inside looking out into it. So indoor, outdoor, and open, airy, clean air, uh, which I'll talk about in a minute, um, and activities. So when you come in, it's inviting and you don't feel like, oh my God, I'm being sent into, you know, a dark, dingy, smelly cave and I just want out of here. Um, the other thing we're really looking for is I just don't want to find our activities directors and our, and our management. If people are in their wheelchairs waiting by the front door, you know, if they're outside catching a breath of fresh air out on the front patio, that's great. You know, that, that, that's what front patios are for. That's great. But if they're kind of lined up in a circle around the front door waiting to be picked up, that's just a bad sign. And it just doesn't feel right to me. Um, I, I really want our, our residents to be engaged and active. Certainly sit outside, catch some sun and fresh air. Great. But don't be, sit, don't be there because you're just waiting to be taken away. You know, ha- have the activities, have the indoor space, feel indoor, outdoor. Um, and, and a lot of different kind of activities at the same time, always some people more like arts, some people like projects, some people like, you know, different kinds of lectures, but you want them all going on all the time. So there's always, you know, plethora of activities. Um, so as we, as we, when you're asking about our investment, as we approach it, where does, where does our company, if you're a, if you're an investment company, you're, you know, you're investing money, you, you see senior housing and you say, I'd like to invest some money in senior housing because there are 10,000 people a day turning 75. And I think over a you know five to 10 year window on an investment, if I, if I put it in place, there's growing demand, exponentially growing demand. Supply is somewhat constrained. You know, this feels like a good investment. Then you, you got to think about, okay, am I investing in projects that are completed? Maybe I go through a REIT and their, their you know, returns are fairly limited. Um, do I invest in a in a real estate development project? Well, that's risky. Who and where? What's the you know what's the advantage of of this particular development or this particular company? What's their resume or you know what is their value add? How how are they going to make money on my investment? And um, for us at Griffin, we are looking at the supply chain and where we fit into it. And uh, we know that we want the finished product to be excellent, to compete where we think, where, where we think the whole market of assisted living is going, which is, you know, cleaner, nicer, more inviting kinds of centers. And working backwards, we need to, you know, stand the buildings up. A lot of people can do that. That's not a particular value add. We're certainly very capable of it, it do a lot of it, but then taking a step backwards even further into the supply chain to create the location of where does the building go, what's the demographics in the neighborhood where the building goes, what's the supply constraint where the building goes, and that's really where the value add to our particular company is. So we would go into, for instance, Westlake Village, California, which is here in Southern California. It's a no-growth city and propose that we do senior housing. And the city manager and the mayor say, no, we're not interested in senior housing. Um, we have what we like and we don't really want to approve anymore. So no, we approach them with a little more conversation about what their needs are, that they're their own, own people that have been out here in Thousand Oaks and Westlake forever. And they're now aging and it's not reasonable for the city not to cooperate with some supply for them of senior housing 
by the way, you've known us, the Griffins, for you know, 40 years, 50 years by now. And uh, uh, if you're ever going to do any of this, you know, you ought to do with us. We were able to pick out in this particular case uh, a lot. The city of Thousand Oaks in the Westlake portion of Thousand Oaks said, oh, well, okay, that lot, if you, that's out of our way, we'll let you build senior housing there and develop it. However, if the neighbors object, the answer is no. So you have to make friends with the neighbors and they have to support your project. Well, that's always the case in development. We were able to do that work with the neighbors. We solved that particular problem by creating a roundabout to slow traffic down on the boulevard in front of the neighborhood um, where they had some, some speeding problems and they would get stuck in the mornings with a grammar school. People come into their grammar school and out in the afternoons. So the roundabout got the neighbors happy. The project um, was across, didn't create enough negative externality that anybody really fought it, got the city to approve it. And now we have essentially a monopoly here in the location that we're in. So if, you, if you're over in the Westlake area, um, in our projects, you know, just towards its final stages of being completed, it's the only game in town. So <laughs> for, for this, because we we're able to, to work in the early stages of the approval and go in in a supply-constrained market, we're filling up the building. We've got, uh, I think, 50 reservations now. It's an 85-unit building. The project's not even finished yet. So w this is really unheard of, Roger. But I think the thing, <laughs> w we believe that that building is going to be 100% deposit and leased before it ever opens its doors to move the first person in. It just gives you an idea of supply and demand. So what is our return? Wasn't, uh, you know, for us, it wasn't a huge investment, about uh, $6 million. The return to so our general partner investment um, the return on our six is about twenty six, yeah, twenty, about twenty six million dollars at, at market value with the approval. So I, I don't know what that's a five times return, something like that. That's now that's a huge risk for us, of course, in the development side. Our limited partner investors in that case are an institution, and LP in that case is making a two multiple on their money. So it's about it's not it, it's about 14 percent return. On the limited partner side and the debt side is at what five five percent five and a half percent it just floats. So that you know the capital stack in in that case institution we had more equity in it. We created our value with the approval on on the uh, the land itself. The general contract, the building of it's pretty straightforward. I don't see that's a particular value add for us. It's something we can do. It, it's kind of like what you have to do, like you know, taking a shower in the morning, or eating a breakfast before you go to work. And it's part of the process. But <laughs> the more important part of it is, you know, what demand are we trying to create supply to? What's our competing supply? Is there a value add? And for us, it's going into and developing supply constrained markets. For investment, how are we going to look at this with limited partner investors? We would like to open up a little bit more and say, look, what if Griffin has, in a case like this, what if Griffin only has $3 million into it? What if we take limited partner tranche in for more risky but limited investment that's you know ahead of us in the in the returns always, but we put that into the into the 20s, so it'll mid to say mid to low 20s. And then we put um, some limited partner investment on top of that at about eight to ten percent and debt on top of that. So more 
striations is uh, what we've been talking in a project in right now, another project in Atlanta, another one down in Temecula that's, that's approved and capitalizing right now. So we're looking at different, if you will, capital stacks and for family offices, how we could fit in for higher returns still with a reasonable amount of equity from us for their protection and have them you know, have a fixed return before we get any, including our capital back. In the one in Westlake, um, what were the amounts, uh, the minimum, maximum? I guess there probably is, maybe there is a max, but that LPs put in. In Westlake, uh, we had six. Uh, my LP is at 14 million and our debt, six, 14, 20, our debt is at 20. Million. And so the LPs, like what was a typical amount that they would put in? Or you're just saying you just had one LP? I do. We just had one LP in that case. It was an institution. And as our company is going forward, what we're looking for is a little more striation in the capital stack to move family offices or that, that are looking for high returns into the low 20s. Um, how to fit them in with the kind of underwriting that institutions will do before they go into the project. Um, so before anybody puts any capital in a, in a project with us, the entire capital stack has to go into place all at once. So for an investor um, that was coming in from a family office, they'd say, okay, well, Griffin's money's already here, of course. The entitlement, the approval's already here. Um, the general contracts are let, you know, uh, a senior senior living management contracts are let the uh, uh, debt contract the uh, loan documents are signed in an escrow the institutional limited partner agreements are signed their money uh, positions are in escrow they would wait on the entire balance of the capital stack would be griffin's money plus what we're looking for is to put family office money in between Griffin and the limited partner equity. Family office would say, I get the advantage of the underwriting that the debt player and the institutional uh, limited partner ac- equity position, they, they have all of their professional underwriting, they're done, their money is here. Griffin's work is done as the sponsor and their money is here. And my confidence in investing in between for return into the low 20s is I'm taking a risk. This is a development. Um, this is a qualified, experienced developer with a resume. These are extremely uh, uh, professional and you know large institutions for the LP equity that is uh, behind them and the debt that's behind I guess they'd say in front of them, the LPs in front of them, the debt's in front of everybody. And Griffin is behind everybody. So you know, it's a decision that you can make that's not the same as buying into a REIT or big, you know, not into buying Well Tower or, you know, big group like that, who, by the way, are excellent. Um, but it, it's it's a way to, to get a returns that are much higher for some risk and a way to underwrite the risk with outside, you know, professional underwriting and say, so that you can look at it and, and decide, you know, is this a reasonable risk and you know how do I quantify this risk and what kind of returns can I expect to get? What would be a minimum that you would take from a family office in a deal approximately only because you've mentioned it specifically the deal the size of the Westlake deal? Would it be a well, million dollars or? Westlake deal if we're, we're around six million into it, I, I would argue probably we'd want, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to go less than a million dollars. We're probably looking yeah, two million, two to three million. We're not sure because we're not 
We've really dealt with family offices other than selling a big project effectively in an institution, although it's a family office. But I think as we're talking about, you know, family offices where, um, you know, somebody's worked hard and amassed, you know, pretty good size investment portfolio and, you know, how, what percentage of their investment portfolio are they comfortable with and what kind of underwriting can we give to them so they know what they're investing into. So I'm thinking, you know, less than a million dollars is not worth everybody. It's not worth their while or our while. I don't think we're probably thinking of more than two million if we had so if we had six and you know, two from a family office and four from us in the in that that part of the capital stack and then the the uh, limited partner you know institutional equity in front of them and the debt in front I think that's a comfortable amount where we would be comfortable looking at a family office and saying the underwriting is is complete you're making a clearly informed decisions so you understand clearly what you're investing in and you understand clearly what the risks are and uh, what the returns uh, you know ought to be in this case so i think our biggest fear as a developer is taking family offices and having family offices go into a project and say well i just didn't understand you know we we were enchanted by you know Paul's conversation or something. That's what we don't want. We want them. We want to have people look at the project, look at the underwriting, look at our experience, but you know make truly good informed decisions because it, it, the money's hard earned, and you know we want them to to get the return for the risk. You know a great return for the risk, but not you know ridiculous risks that you know are unfounded. So our our our. Our concern is the uh, is the sponsor is kind of the other way around. We're, we're actually more worried that the underwriting is complete and that a family office comes in and they really do understand what they're investing in and that we can produce results for them. Let me ask you this question. So obviously you sought out this asset class because of the huge undeniable growth and then the the paucity of um, existing inventory, especially as you talked about something that you'd actually even want to live in, you know, to boot and well-located. I guess though, you know, you've got a, a perspective based on a lot of years of being in the industry, real estate in particular. What's your take on different asset classes right now? For example, I know that multifamily is just like going full guns, but is it at the end of a up cycle or how, how do you see different asset classes? Obviously offices, you know, not doing wonderful with people working from home, et cetera. What's your, what's your overall macro view? I mean, it's a great question, Roger. Um, I think what you have to start with always in business is, you know, your demand. So in the case of real estate development, you want to look at the demographics of, um, uh, you know, of the society and what you think they need. So, uh, you know, always produced needs. And then you want to look at supply constraints. So in the case of, of apartments, you know, the risk in apartments or multifamily is that they get overbuilt in any given location. And then, you know, the, the apartments as they build exist and they have to be rented. So the market value or the rent that you get, you know, will float with, with uh, supply and demand. Uh, demand seems fairly steady for apartments. I personally, my, you know, my personal bias is I would like to see American families find their way into it's some pretty healthy percentage home ownership because I think number one, it's a good investment. Families can live in a home, make the mortgage payment, and they finish, you know, at the end of their generation with an asset uh, that they can use for their retirement. It's you know sort of a forced investment, if you will, in an appreciating asset. And I think also it's really great for families to have home ownership, and therefore they take an interest and 
uh, an active you know role in the uh, communities that they live in. So you know they they might all get together and say the last thing we want is more Griffin building more houses, deal with it all the time. But I still think that's better. I would like communities to be involved and pay attention to their parks, their shopping, their schools, their churches, all the rest of it, and have communities. I think it's healthier. So I, my bias is is that housing, whether attached or, or single family, but uh, home ownership is is better for communities. However, there's a large part of the population that just doesn't fit. They're too, you know, nomadic in their in their lifestyle. Their families, you know, are are uh, have different issues and they move around. So rentals, you know, make a lot of sense. And it's always going to be a, you know, actually a larger percentage of, of dwelling are going to be in apartments. So that certainly in the uh, you know, through the last uh, 10 years, 10, 15 years is, is taken off. Um, I'm shocked one of our apartment complexes here in Southern California through COVID stayed full. It's today 100% full and rates. <laughs> and the, the uh, I, I, do, I don't manage apartments. You know, it's a part of our other family office. So it's not me, but I'm shocked when they give the reports and the thing's full and they're raising, their rents are going up. It just where, tells where is it? That is over in Riverside, which is just to the east of Los Angeles, called the Inland Empire. Yep, I know it. You know, we have uh, one over in Simi Valley. It's also doing very well. And uh, up in uh, Palmdale, which is a way, you know, that, that's way north in a desert community. Some family communities grown quite a bit. They've all done very well. They're doing very well. So, so I, well, anyway, I think I think apartments are a great asset. But again, it's you know supply and demand. If you go somewhere where you can where they can be overbuilt, um, your investment you know is a little bit more dangerous. So you want to look at an investment in a in a multifamily project and say, well, what is you know what does the demand seem like? Are the you know buildings that are around full and are they filling quickly as as you get the normal turnover? Are you know rates generally are you seeing you know normally appreciating? Uh, you know, rental rates, you know, how does the market look? So, you know, that's all pretty knowable as an investor. And then you want to look around and say, well, what's the constraint to supply in this particular community? That's also very easy to find out about. And um, if it looks like, you know, there's no barrier to entry and there's a lot of guys proposing new apartment complexes, probably that's not your best investment. <laughs> and you, you, for a lot of investors, a lot of family office, you maybe go into an apartment complex that's finished and, you know, stabilized and you're buying in with a group of other investors. You know, that could be a great investment too, but the returns are, are you know, pretty well, you know, worked out that you're not going to make a lot of profit in that case, but it could be a very solid investment. In the case, uh, an office, of course, uh, gosh, we have a couple of office buildings and <laughs> they're terrible. <laughs> you know, they, they're, everybody is working from home. I think the, in corporate America, you know, we're, I think the idea of um, going down to about the th- a third of maybe the office space and having the flex space guys can come in and work conference rooms and, you know, flexible desks, but they could work you know, a way more is, a, is hap- it was happening before COVID. I think COVID's really driving it. And, you know, for companies that are looking for return on their asset base, you know, big company, their money that they leave parked in owning an office building or, or renting a lot of office space, you know, simply, you know, slows their return on investment or their asset turn to something less because that's not a, it's you, you, their investment in office space is not going into inventory. It's going into overhead. Um, which is just straight expense. Uh, they would far rather a company far rather its investment go into inventory and inventory to sales to cash to more inventory and and get a faster faster inventory turn is more profitable. So they less 
profit margin, but more turns creates large profit. For us, uh, it, you know, as a private company, we look at our at, our office space as something that we can use or release out to other users. Uh, what we're ending, what we're doing is just dividing the office spaces into smaller uses, and um, you know, renting to people to uh, a company, you know, individual companies, proprietorships, what have you, that just take less space each. I find it all a pain in the neck. Um, I don't know. Again, I don't manage our income property group. Uh, is a different group out of our family office. The office management group of, of that office. They're busy and they like it. I, from the outside, you know, don't like the asset class very much. In the in the case of uh, of senior apartments, which is how we got started in the senior business, it was the end of a of a master plan that we we're doing out at Riverside, the same place that we did the uh, uh, that we own the uh, large apartment complex family multifamily apartment complex, we developed a senior family, uh, senior apartment complex. The reason we developed the senior apartment complex is back in 2010, you guys may remember there was no capital around the U.S. We, you know, we were having the, the huge meltdown that, you know, Lehman was going out of business and, uh, you know, it was a, <laughs> I was thinking ahead, Lehman had invested $34 million with us in a project and we had returned their money plus their interest, fortunately. And I ran into the uh, director of, of real estate at, at Lehman at a, at a conference. And you know, I said, you, you don't know me and you're, you know, you're so big and we're just, you know, at 30 some million dollars, we're, we're really nothing. But I want to tell you that, you know, we are so appreciative of your investment to our, you know, our family business that it, it was just huge to us and our growth. <laughs> and Poor guy looked at me and he said, and you paid us back. He said, you're one of the few people that did. I, you know, I really want to thank you. So it was a, it was an awful time back then. And um, for, uh, we needed to find capital to, to go into, uh, to continue to develop. And I, I ended up in China. And you know, through, uh, through a Chinese company, Beijing Construction Company, who was borrowing money from uh, Import-Export Bank of China and then had an American corporation that they could, they could venture loan, effectively loan us money um, legally so I could contract with them and legally have money from it. It was Chinese money. So I ended up in Beijing all the time talking to them and they were vitally interested in how do we do housing for seniors. We've got a t- terrible problem in China and it looks like you're coming up with the same problem over time in the U.S., which is true. So we developed a program for senior apartments. They invested. They invested into the project and where, where there was no capital at that time, and it was successful. We did a age restricted apartment. We did a huge um, central activity, a big spa pool with the uh, cabanas and you know all of the outdoor activities. Uh, we did a you know really remarkably uh, high end world class gym and dining air dining facility although we didn't offer you know a chef and meals it was dining facility uh, as people wanted to use it um, but it was a lot of activities and the you know it it really leased up very well we saw tremendous demand and growing from that i got to know by going by the project um, i got to know some of our customers and understand i wanted to talk to them and say well what you know what are you doing here what did you hope to find do you work are you retired what do you know who are you and i found you know, it really every ilk of 75, they, people started about 75. They didn't move to senior housing really before about in their early, early to mid 70s. There were not people into their 80s, which tended to need more uh, assisted living care. And this was really, uh, you know, high end senior rentals um, with a lot of amenities. But 
<laughs> our, our marketing manager did a, uh, this really opened our eyes. He did a speed dating, dating for seniors night. <laughs> and it was such a success. There were, there were people lined up in cars all the way out to the major boulevard. The police had to come and click, close traffic down. And, uh, and evening news came out to film the thing for the local news out there. Riverside came out to film it because it was such an event. And it, what it really opened our eyes to, you know, these, these are really customers, they're real people, they have real needs. And, you know, we, they're not just decrepit and needing to be warehoused somewhere. They're living their life and they, they have demands and needs and we can fill them. And that apartment complex, we ended up selling to Overture, which is a high-end apartment complex, but we ran it for several years and, you know, great returns and a, and a great project really opened our eyes to senior housing. You know, from there, we've just gone on and, and dug in and studied the whole, the whole uh, you know, demand curve more. Now, that's 10 years ago. So, you know, there were 10,000 people a day turning 65. Now that, now that same group is at 75 and going forward to another 10 years, that same group is going to be at 85 and there just isn't supply. It's, we just aren't supplied nearly in this country for that kind of demand. So it feels to us like we're, you know, moving to what's needed and um, we, we want to be in areas where, you know, there are barriers to entry. So urban and suburban markets where they really don't want any more development. And that's, frankly, that's all over the country. We're down in Boca Raton. We're up in uh, in Connecticut in the Danbury market. We're in uh, in Atlanta. And right now we've got two projects in Atlanta. One is filling very quickly. It's 200, uh, sorry, 180 unit building with independent living, assisted living. Another one um, just starting up in the Ackworth market, this country club market. We're here in several locations in Southern California. I think we're coming into uh, Marin County. I think that one's going to go forward. So I you know we're trying to be in Northern California and in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. I think one seems to be moving forward. So, you know, we, we're looking at, at markets across the country where they're we're more interested in where there's supply constraint and a lot of demand and growth. Paul, I think that that is a perfect segue into our conclusion. It does not take a, a vivid imagination to understand growing, insatiable demand and limited supply barriers to entry. You've been fantastic to speak to, and uh, I appreciate your time. Thank you. I, you know, one thing I didn't touch on, and I think this is also important, what in senior housing, these people have always been susceptible to viruses and being sick. They're a little bit more frail, in some cases, much more frail. This COVID has really put us all on notice that we have to take this issue more seriously as an industry for senior housing. And we we went to a, a group out of uh, Washington, D.C., Citadel. They've got scientists that have managed uh, you know, virus control for NASA and for the White House. They're really good scientists. And they've put together a system of protocols for our buildings that we're starting now in our buildings that are being completed in all our four buildings. Um, they include the heating and air system. So the air that filters through the building gets a higher percentage of fresh air coming in and out. The air exchanges uh, 10 times in a normal room per hour, four times, uh, pardon me, four times in the bedrooms per hour, 10 times in the uh, in the main dining rooms and the main activity rooms, uh, the air filtration is filtered to an N95 mask level. So the, any air that even does circulate, fresh air, and the circulating air is N95. We have uh, um, like where you walk into an airport, you walk through the blue light wands, it kills virus on you. Turn around, it'll automatically take your temperature, so we know that you're not sick when you're coming in. Whoever you are, staff, guest, resident, anybody. 
all of the you know ingress and egress to the building have these these uh, stations. So anything that's on you is killed off, and your temperature is taken, and you're logged in in our computer. So we know who came, what their temperature was. We know exactly who's in the building. And we uh, inside the building, uh, we spray the entire thing like they're do just with the same material using in airplanes these today. Uh, it's a, a finish that goes over the top of of uh, all surfaces, and then a uh, uh, will kill any uh, bacteria or virus that touches the you know any surface. That's why airplanes you know are safer today. And um, uh, then they they spray an activating agent uh, uh, several times a day that you know also. Uh, enhance any anything that needs to be killed. Plus, elevators have blue lights in them, so anybody that's going into a common area, uh, any virus is killed off of them. So we're taking this this area, this whole area, much more seriously. I think it's very important for our residents and their families, and also our staff that works there. I, I think so. I you know I, I think all of this together, uh, creating dining the dining rooms, just creating an animation our dining services. So Sunday brunches with carving stations, outdoor barbecues on the on the patio areas. Um, you know, at Hawaiian nights, taco nights. You know, <laughs> all of it. We, we need to create animation. It's got to be a place to live and to be happy. And so I, I think the safety and the and the lifestyle is just huge to us. But I think that needs to be said, and I do think that the better senior centers are looking and leaning into these kinds of solutions. That makes a tremendous amount of obvious sense, and it sounds like it's something that you are clearly addressing and will need to be addressed by other developers and operators. You're not leaving any stone unturned, which comes as no surprise. Any other parting words? We're, we're kind of at the top of a great hour yeah. and ten. Hey, thank you, Roger. I think that I think at the end. I'm discussing my vision and my experience for a for an investor. You know, the vision of the sponsor is important. The experience is important, but it's really even more important. Look at the numbers behind it. You have to look at supply numbers. You have to look at demand numbers. Those are for companies that are uh, institutional limited partner investors. They have all of that and they look at it. We look at it seriously with them. So it's, you know, it's not Paul's charm or good wit. That, that's nice, but that's not a way to invest. You're looking at the underlying numbers and, you know, statistics and, you know, what is the likelihood that this is, this is going to work based on supply and demand. So I, I, I would just say don't, don't get charmed by, you know, a, any developer or really any business. Look at the numbers behind it. words of wisdom, although you are charming, but I understand your point. But I'm old too. (laughs) (laughs) Paul, thank you very much. I appreciate you spending the time. Thank you for having me, Roger. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Street Smart Success.